the most beautiful chapter in the Bible is probably Luke 15. It contains the story of the prodigal son, which is the crown and pearl of all the parables. The Scottish people call it the parable of the wonderful father, which is perhaps a better title still. And yet, we like that word prodigal. And this parable is a story of prodigal grace and how it exceeds prodigal sin. The word prodigal, you remember, means wasteful, lavish, overgenerous. And God, my friends, is overgenerous. In order to understand the story, we need to put it in its setting. We should come back even to the previous chapter and note what it says in verse 25 of Luke 14. There went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What strong words from our loving master. Of course, the expression hate not means to love less. It's an oriental idiom. And Jesus is saying, in effect, that to be a Christian, one must love him more than the members of one's own family and love him more than one's own life. That seems a very hard saying. Today, much of religion is superficial and frothy. This verse takes us to the heart of genuine religion. It means to be preoccupied with Jesus and nothing nothing and nobody else. It doesn't mean that we'll be so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly use. But it means that having given Jesus his right place, all other things find their right place. But when we look at this demand, it seems too much for us. Is there any one of us who by nature can love Christ in this way? more than husband or wife or father or mother or brethren and sisters and children and one's own life? The answer is no. We cannot do it. It is beyond us. Unless. Unless we come to see how much Christ loves us. And that's why Luke 14 is followed by Luke 15 which is all about the love of Christ, the prodigal love of Christ. You notice how the chapter begins. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him, all the tax gatherers, those hated people. The sinners, this included the harlots and the prostitutes. No wonder the Pharisees and scribes murmured, as the next verse says, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And then Jesus told three stories. Notice how he turned trouble into a blessing. They brought an accusation against him and he made it the text of a wonderful sermon. Because no one ever preached the gospel better than the Pharisees did then, though they never meant to, when they said, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. That's what the gospel really is. Christ receiveth sinners and has fellowship with Well, Christ told three stories, in each of which he said to the accusation, guilty, yes, I'm guilty, 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 guilty of receiving sinners. 
And he told the story of a man having a hundred sheep who lost one and went into the wilderness and went after the one that was lost until he found it. And when he'd found it, he laid it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbours, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. And Jesus said, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons that need no repentance. That was story number one. <clears throat> Here he answered the Pharisees and said, Yes, you're right, I do receive sinners. Story number two was this. What woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she has found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, I found the piece which I'd lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. That was story number two. Then comes the greatest story of all. And the yo- a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he'd spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he, he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. But when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come. My father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. He was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, These many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, yet you never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. 
It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. In Luke 15 we have three stories about three things that are lost. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost boy. The sheep is lost by its own stupidity. It sees green grass a bit further off, and so it goes over to that green grass, and it sees more green grass further off, and it looks better, so it goes to that, and on and on it goes till it's lost. Well, that's not so strange. The 20th century is full of instances of this in every area, even in marriage. A man or a woman sees another person a little bit further off, goes after them, divorce, remarriage, sees another further off, goes after them, divorce, remarriage, and so on. We always think our best good is around the corner. We're stupid. We haven't learnt that life is in the living, that today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. The present duty, the present joy, the present moment. These are the real riches. But we're stupid like the sheep and we get lost. Then there was the lost coin. It was lost because of somebody else's stupidity. Notice it was lost in the family, in the home. Many a child is lost because of the parents' stupidity. Parents can be so preoccupied with things as to neglect the character, the being made in the image of God. And the children can be lost because of their neglect, their stupidity. And then the last story was about someone lost because of willfulness. So there we have the three types of sinners. The stupid ones who are lost because of their own stupidity. The sad ones who are lost because of somebody else's stupidity. And the willful ones lost because of their willfulness. But not only are there three types of sinners here, but we have the three members of the Godhead in this chapter. When we read of the good shepherd that leaves the ninety and nine and goes after the one that was lost, that represents Jesus, the Son of God the second member of the Trinity, who left heaven, come down here to seek the lost sheep. When we read of the woman with the candle seeking for the coin, that's a symbol of the light of the Holy Spirit in the work of the church, seeking the lost. And then in the third parable, we have a picture of the wonderful Father, so we have the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. We have the whole Trinity here. All types of sinners and all the members of the Godhead. When we come to this third story, there are three prodigals. We call it the story of the prodigal son. But that's a mistake, my friends. There are three prodigals in this story. We're familiar with the first one. This young man who comes to the father and says, give me, and later comes back and says, make me. You know, if he'd only reversed it and come to the father and said, make me, in the beginning, later on he could have said, give me. But we begin life very self-engrossed. We forget that to be wrapped up in oneself makes one a very small parcel indeed. Well, he was this willful young man, and we can trace the stages of the story. 
We see him in independence, then in separation, and then in descent, and then in dissipation, then in despair, and near to death. Next he arises, returns, and is restored. He finds out that a fast life can lead to a fast old age and threatens a fast death. For many people, even if money holds out, health doesn't hold out. Satiety sets in. There's no sweetness left. There's only delirium. The meat can be eaten to the bone, but no marrow is found there. The teeth will be broken on it. The man wishes he'd never sat down to such a terrible feast. That's the way of sin, my friends. He gathered very quickly, but he wasted just as quickly. We find him so proud that even when the famine famine comes, he doesn't immediately surrender. His confidence isn't yet overthrown, though it's shaken. He joins himself to a citizen of that country. The Greek word means he glued himself. Glued himself. He could only swim if the other man was swimming. He could only survive if the other man survived. This was a fall within a fall, to be sent to feed swine, this runaway boy. How sad the record that no man gave unto him. Filled his stomach with the husks that swine ate. They were carob pods. As he ate those husks, it seemed to him he could hear the words, Go home, go home. The look on the farmer's face said, Go home. The grunting of the pig said, Go home. All nature said, Go home. He thought of his home. He thought of the many servants, the abundance of food, bread enough and to spare in his father's house, and here was he perishing with hunger. They were servants, and he was a son. I'll arise and go to my father, he says. Notice, he rises immediately, the conviction comes. And he goes just as he is, all smelling of the pigsty. And he arose and he came to his father. His great need was contact with the one that loved him. And the father who'd walked to the hill every day to look for his boy, sees him from a great way off had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. We're tempted to think it should read he ran and kicked him, but it says he ran and kissed him. You know, the Buddhists have a story about a prodigal son, but when he returns to his father, the father hides from him. And ultimately the son is tested for long years. The father exercises proper caution He wants the boy to prove he's good. Then he'll accept him. But see the wonder of the gospel, my friends. God accepts us just as we are. You're not on probation. Come today. Come this moment. And he'll accept you. That robe that was put upon the prodigal son represents the robe of Christ's righteousness. It covered all the marks of the far country. Notice the father didn't even let the boy get out his full penitence. He started to say the memorised speech, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father didn't let him get out the rest of it. But called to his servants, bring forth the best robe. Ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Kill the fatted calf, let's eat, be merry. This my son was dead and is alive again. 
was lost and was found. Wonderful picture of the love of God for the lost. A father receives a son back just as he is. So eager to have him back. So glad. Gives him his robe and his ring. And calls a party. That's what God is like, my friends. That father. Prodigal grace exceeds prodigal sin. The love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind. The heart of the eternal is wonderfully kind. Could we with ink the ocean fill? You know that poem, I'm sure. If every stalk on earth was a quill, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's the love of God, my friends. And though every man was a scribe by trade, though the whole ocean was his ink supply, and every earth a quill, he still couldn't write the fullness of the love of God. For God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, he says. The mountains may depart and the hills be removed yet my kindness will not depart from thee nor the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Lord that hath mercy on me. God delights in forgiveness, more willing to hear our prayers than we are to offer them, more willing to forgive than we are to repent. What a wonderful God. But we haven't finished the story. We've talked of two prodigals so far. Two, you say? Who's the second one? God, my friends. God. He's a Prodigal with his love. Prodigal with his grace. Prodigal with his mercy. Do you believe it? Lots of people believe God's prodigal in strength, but he's prodigal in mercy. His strength is beyond measure, but so is his mercy. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And when Christ asks us to love him more than life itself, he assures us that God has loved us that way. It was God that died on the cross for us. For us. For you. For me. We come now to the third prodigal. The third prodigal is the elder son. You say, how's he a prodigal? He stayed at home. Ah, yes, my friend. He was in the father's home, but he was far from the father's heart. As a matter of fact, the elder son might have been half the reason why the younger son left home. It's very hard to live with a Pharisee. Very hard. This son was nothing like his father. Jesus is sketching the Pharisees. These men that criticised him in the beginning of the story, the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Jesus is sketching them in the elder brother. That's why the story doesn't finish. It doesn't tell us how the elder son responded to his father's appeal. The story is left incomplete because Jesus is appealing to the Pharisees to come down from their high horse. 
to become loving men like their heavenly father. Jesus is saying that every loveless person is lost. Every person who looks on his brother or his sister with cold, critical eyes is lost. The proof that Christ has received us is that he makes us lovers. Christ is the true elder brother. He went searching. This elder brother shouldn't have been at home. He should have been out in the country looking for his lost brother. And so here we have a a third prodigal. He has been wasteful of his father's love. You see how wonderful is the appeal of the father? Son, thou art ever with me. And all that I have is thine. Fancy speaking like that to someone as loveless as the boy that stayed at home. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. We have a God that even loves the Pharisees. Of course, he can't take them to heaven as Pharisees. They've got to be changed. But he loves them. He died for them. What is so significant in this story is that Jesus is not only sketching the Pharisees, he's sketching all of us by nature because we're born Pharisees. Here's his elder brother and he's in the field when we meet him, not in the kitchen. He's not sucking Coca-Cola with his feet up, watching the TV. He's out in the field, working, not shirking. So here's a very virtuous person. But because he's loveless, my friends, he's lost. And the world is full of people of apparent virtue, but lacking in love, and they're lost. It's dangerous to be rich in good reputation. It's dangerous to be rich in outward virtue. Let me remind you of some things that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. Christ said, blessed are the poor and how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. No doubt he primarily meant the economically rich and economically poor, but do not his words also apply to another kind of riches and poverty? One of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give, and so fail to realise your need of God. If everything seems to come simply by signing cheques, you may forget you are at every moment totally dependent on God. Now, quite plainly, Natural gifts carry with them a similar danger. If you have sound nerves and intelligence and health and popularity and a good upbringing, you are likely to be quite satisfied with your character just as it is. Why drag God into it, you may ask? A certain level of good conduct comes fairly easily to you. You're not one of those wretched creatures who are always being tripped up by sex or dipsomania or nervousness or bad temper. Everyone says you're a nice chap. Between ourselves, you agree with them. You're quite likely to believe that all this niceness is your own doing. You may easily not feel the need for any better kind of goodness. Often, people who have all these natural kinds of goodness cannot be brought to recognise their need for Christ at all, until one day the natural goodness lets them down and their self-satisfaction is shattered. In other words, it's hard for those who are rich in this sense to enter the kingdom. But it's very different for the nasty people. 
Now Lewis is thinking about the publicans and sinners. The little, low, timid, warped, thin-blooded, lonely people, or the passionate, sensual, unbalanced people. If they make any attempt at goodness at all, they learn in double-quick time they need help. It's Christ or nothing for them. It's taking up the cross and following, or else despair. They're the lost sheep. He came specially to find them. They are, in one very real and terrible sense, the poor. He blessed them. They're the awful set he goes about with. And of course the Pharisees say still, as they said from the first, if there were anything in Christianity, those people wouldn't be Christians. Now there's either a warning or an encouragement here for every one of us. If you're a nice person, if virtue comes easily to you, beware. Much is expected from those to whom much is given. If you mistake for your own merits what are really God's gifts to you through nature, if you're contented with simply being nice, you're still a rebel. All those gifts will only make your fall more terrible, your corruption more complicated, your bad example more disastrous. The devil was an archangel once. His natural gifts were as far above yours as yours are above those of a chimpanzee. But if you were a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, don't despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you're trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, perhaps far sooner than that, he'll fling it on the scrap heap, give you a new one. Then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you've learned your driving in a hard school. Some of the last will be first, and some of the first will be last. Niceness, wholesome, integrated personality, is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice. But we must not suppose that even if we've succeeded in making everyone nice, we would have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. My friends, cursed are the rich, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the story of the pre-prodigals is meant to tell us just that. God bless you.